Hey, y'all, I have had such a wonderful time hanging out with you this weekend. I don't think I have seen such amazing hospitality ever, ever. You have blessed me with warmth and hugs and handshakes and pictures and, and gift baskets that have definitely destroyed my health and, and, and friendly people and, uh, and, and Tammy and Lamar who are in here somewhere gave me a king cake. Yeah, a king cake, a big one. Yeah. And the only reason they didn't have to call the EMTs for sugar overload is because the receptionist at the hotel was so excited about my king cake that we split it. So otherwise pretty much ate the rest of it. Okay. So I, I have loved being here for those of you who were here yesterday and hung in there for seven hours while we did Deborah and the book of Judges. Thank you. Thank you for all your insights. I got a manila envelope full of your index cards, full of suggestions and periodic possible titles. And some of them are really good. Yeah. Like Pearson, right? Do I have the name right? Yes. Okay. Pearson, wherever you are, not only are you good at drums, but oh, am I going to have fun with those table, those titles. Okay. So I am having a great time, which means I might talk for a long time because I'm happy up here. And I hope that you are equally happy down here. Um, all right. Oh, and the Lasky Committee. Thank you for bringing me here to do these lectures. I understand that I'm the first chick to ever do the Lasky lectures. So I'm looking forward to maybe being the fourth chick who does the last. Okay. All right. So let's get rolling. Um, we, this morning, our title is um, Hope Stronger Than Fear. It will show up on a screen, I think, at some point soon. I have to say, I think this is a pretty good title. In fact, you know, hope, stronger than fear. Do you like that title? I would love to take credit for it, but I, I need to fess up that I didn't actually come up with that title. I stole it. And uh, I stole it from an epic tale that most of you know very well. In fact, a lot of you, if you're part of that emerging adult crowd that I spend my life with, uh, you were kind of raised on it. It is the saga of a certain Katniss Everdeen an unlikely leader if there ever was one, a young woman who, due to her singularly loyal heart, winds up the target of an evil empire, a capricious evil that considers Katniss and everything she loves completely disposable. Do you know what story I'm talking about yet? Yeah, and there's this famous scene in the story as well in which President Cornelius Snow, who is resplendent in his wealth and completely insulated from the horrors of his own empire, is talking to his gamekeeper, Seneca Crane, who is resplendent in his ridiculous and frivolous attire. And he says to the guy who's running his Hunger Games, he says, so, Seneca Crane, Do you understand the real purpose of the Hunger Games? Do you remember that scene? And uh, Seneca's confused, of course, because he's like the gamekeeper. And Snow says to him, he presses a little harder, he says, why do we have a winner? And Crane, 
like most of us, uh, is confused. And so Snow pushes in a little further. Why don't we just round up 24 young people from the districts and execute them? It would be a lot quicker. And Crane still doesn't get it. And so with poorly veiled disdain, President Snow leans in and says, hope. Hope, Crane responds. Hope, Snow says. It is the only thing that is stronger than fear. Snow's point, if we're going to control 12 brutally oppressed districts and keep them from revolution, we're going to need something stronger than fear. And that is where my title comes from. Yeah, because although I completely disdain President Cornelius Snow, and as I watched that series and read those books, everything in me wanted to catch up Katniss and Peeta and Rue and, and Gail and get them as far away from President Snow as possible and completely keep them out of his evil arena. He and his cold, callous calculations absolutely terrified me, but I was also fully aware <laughs> that President Snow was right. Hope is stronger than fear. Both hope and fear will keep you up till 2 a.m. to make sure that that final project or that project for work is actually completed. Both hope and fear will keep you in medical school or maybe even in seminary when all you want to do is drop out and get back to normal life. But hope is actually the more powerful of the two. Fear can push you to do things that you wouldn't normally and maybe shouldn't normally do. But hope, hope is going to make you stand your ground when the world is crumbling around you and an enemy twice your size has absolutely knocked the wind out of you. Fear can't do that. Hope keeps the watchman on the wall. Hope gets you back on your feet when everything around you says, just give up and die. Hope is what makes you say yes when everyone around you is saying no, or perhaps even more importantly, it helps you say no when everyone around you is saying yes. Hope is stronger than fear. Snow had that part right. So let me tell you a little story. I'm a professor. I spend my most quality time with a whole slew of emerging adults. Sometimes they've emerged and they're wonderful and beautiful and amazing. And then other times they act like they're 14 again. Okay. That's what the emerging thing is about. Well, it was a number of years ago. I was still teaching at Wheaton College and I made a particular assignment in my Isaiah class. And Isaiah is an exegesis class and the class is kind of a mixed bag. I've got uh, Bible and theology majors and I've got all sorts of other majors. And for their final project, I required them to do that final exegetical project as a cross-disciplinary thing. This is what liberal arts is all about, right? So what that means is I made the business and econ majors like pair up with the Bible and theology majors. It means that I made the football players actually work with the guys who were going to become youth pastors. It meant I made the psych majors uh, engage again with the Bible and theology majors. Don't you love it when profs do that? Don't you love group projects? Come on, all you high school students. Don't you love group projects? Yeah, okay, well, I get to do it because I have power. I'm on. But the news is some really great projects came out of that, 
And I also discovered really quick that there was something unique going on with my psych majors. You know, all those folks are going to become our future therapists and psychiatrists and help us all be healthier people and have healthier families and have perfect churches. And yeah, good luck, you guys. Um, All right. So my psych majors, to my great surprise and to theirs, they all wanted to work on the same topic. Now, keep in mind, these are private meetings. Yeah. And Isaiah is a really big book. So how in the world did five different psych majors all come up with the same potential project? Well, the answer is because all of them found hope in the book of Isaiah. Yeah, well, that that isn't a huge surprise um, that the passionate and compelling uh, words of my man Isaiah would, would trigger them to start thinking about hope. But what surprised me is they all wanted to do this based on the highway passages in the book of Isaiah. So now I'm intrigued, right? And what will come out of these projects is that this old dog is going to learn some new tricks. Uh, Sometimes those emerging adults have an awful lot to teach us. Okay, so what um, they saw in the book of Isaiah were the highway passages, passages like uh, chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, where our prophet is offering a word of messianic hope to the exiles of the northern kingdom. And this is what he says, and the Lord will make a highway to cross on foot. So there shall be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that is left of my people, as there was for Israel when they came out of Egypt. And you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, our God, for you were angry with us, but your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. They found Isaiah 35, chapter uh, chapter 35, verse 8, the first great climax of the book, by the way, where the images of desert being transformed into garden and wildflower are just exploding in the chapter. And what they saw was a highway shall be there. Where? Well, the vision that Isaiah is having is the new Jerusalem, the eschaton, the end of the story, heaven. A highway will be there, and it shall be called the holy way. And the unclean shall not travel it, but it shall be for God's people to travel. And not even fools will go astray on this highway. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return, and come to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy will be upon their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and singing will flee away. My students found Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11 as our prophet catches a glimpse of the final climax of the great story, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the highway for the people, build up, build up that highway, clear it of stones, lift up an ensign for the peoples, for the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, let the daughter of Zion, your salvation is coming, his reward and his recompense is before him. And as I listen to my psych majors present on highways and hope, I realized they did indeed know something that I didn't know. You see, 
I thought I knew something about hope, right? I've been like teaching Bible for longer than a lot of you have been alive. Um, I thought I knew that hope is the birthright of the Christian, and that's true. I knew that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God because we know that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. I knew that this is a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. For a while, I was still a helpless sinner. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I thought I knew something about hope. But what I didn't know about hope is that hope is apparently a psychological category. Did you know that? That hope can be quantified and that hope theory is apparently one of the hottest things in the business of psych and counseling right this moment. I had no idea. I had no idea. So let me tell you something about um, the psychological world of hope. Uh, One thing is that uh, there are mechanisms that can be utilized to create hope. Another thing is that hope is something that can be learned. And that societies that don't have hope, tons of studies have been done, they collapse. Hope is essential to life success. Now, of course, if I'd listened to Paul more carefully, I might have known this stuff too, but I didn't. And nor did I realize that the word of God through my man, Isaiah, could be identified as one of those mechanisms for creating hope where there was so no hope. So let me start, you're looking at the screen, telling you a bit more about hope as a psychological category. This generation's hope guru is a guy named C.R. Snyder. He wrote a book named Hope Theory, Rainbows in the Mind. Not really wild about that subtitle, but you know, he didn't ask me. Um, Sidney uh, Snyder defines hope as the perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways Two goals that get a person out of where they are, bad place, into the place they want to be, good place. And hope is the ability to motivate yourself to use those pathways to get to the place you want to be. Yeah, the perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are into the place they want to be. So Snyder would tell us that hope involves agency, and that is the motivation to actually move forward. And it involves pathways, an identified avenue by which we can move forward. And this, of course, is why my students in exegesis of Isaiah were so interested in Isaiah's highways. But listen more closely to Snyder's definition. To hear what he's saying here, the perceived capability to imagine and pursue pathways to goals that get a person out of where they are into the place they want to be. Do you hear it? According to Snyder, hope starts with me. I have to be able to imagine a pathway forward, and I have to have the agency that gets me to take that first foot forward and get on 
to that pathway, which I would argue typically a healthy adult is able to do. Pick yourself up, dust yourself off, get moving again. But what happens when we're dealing with a not-so-healthy adult? What about when we're dealing with an exhausted or injured adult who's come to the end of their proverbial rope, who due to the injuries of their past and the agonies of their present, finds themselves ready to throw in the towel? Those who are imprisoned by anxiety, who have been crushed by despair. How about those who have been so silenced by injustice that they just don't have it in them to step into the arena one more time? How does that person find the agency and the pathway to move forward? Well, a fellow named E.M. Tong, another hope guru, has called Snyder to account for this. He says under those conditions, Snyder's model doesn't work. Indeed, when, quote, personal influence has lost all relevance, Tong says, those extremely traumatic situations in which people are aware that what is so deeply desired is beyond reach, when neither your talents nor your resources can get you there, close quote, then Snyder's model doesn't work. What do we do with those people? Those people who need hope the very most. Now that's the rub, isn't it? Well, guys, I'm no hope guru, but I can tell you that the conditions that E.M. Tong is describing are exactly the circumstances of Isaiah's audience. And these were the same circumstances that drew my students' attention. Yeah? They heard in the words of the prophet about Yahweh's highway into the wilderness, into a wilderness that would lead home. They found a path forward. They found hope in the oracles of Isaiah. And just to preempt myself, they found a highway that didn't involve the agency of the person who had been knocked down by life circumstances and couldn't find it in themselves, agency, to get up again. So we are in Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, if you've got your Bible with you. Israel has been a nation since Moses came down off of Sinai with the two tablets in his hands. And Yahweh said to Israel, will you? And Israel say, yes, we are in. The promise that God made to this refugee population coming out of Egypt is that if Israel would keep God's covenant, if they would recognize him as their only Lord, that he would give them the land. He would give them the land, a land in which they would obtain houses that had not been built, vineyards that they had not built, vineyards they hadn't planted, olive groves they had not tended. By the way, it takes 20 years for an olive grove to start producing fruit, so getting one you didn't have to plant is kind of a big deal. From the perspective of our heroes, a landless people whose most recent memory was generations of slavery, followed up by a generation of homelessness, Yahweh is promising these people paradise. And best of all, as they step out of Egypt, step out of slavery, he offers them something else. He offers them his name. Have you ever been in a place where you so wished 
that your name wasn't your name because you had made such a mess that you just wanted to start all over again. This is exactly what Yahweh offers to his people. But he also promised that if Israel broke this covenant, that if they didn't maintain their allegiance to the Almighty, then they would, just like the Canaanites before them, they would lose that land, and thereby all the economic stability and military security that came with that land. The requirements were minimal, but they were not negotiable. Well, by the time we pick up the book of Isaiah in Oracle number 43, Israel has proven that they are faithless. In fact, in 586 BC, which is where we are, they have broken every promise they have ever made. They're often compared in the book to a philandering spouse who is cheated not just once, not just twice, but more times than anyone can even remember. So after years of warnings and prophetic oracles and a myriad of second chances, at last the hammer falls. And Yahweh says to Israel, okay, that's it. That's it. The curse is here. I told you this was the outcome, and Israel is driven off their land. In fact, Yahweh sends his servant, Nebuchadnezzar, out of Babylonia to wipe out the land of Israel, to burn Jerusalem to ground, to dismantle the temple stone by stone. Ezekiel, in his eyes of vision, sees the glory of the Lord lift up out of the temple and fly off over the horizon, and they have no reason to believe that anything else is going to ever happen. It's done. We blew it. And this journey of refugees of folks who have lost it all, this trail of tears out of Israel into Babylonia, the worst part of it is everyone in that caravan of despair who has lost their homes, their families, their relatives, their jobs, their status in society, everything they had built with their lives. In that caravan of despair, everyone there knows that what has just happened is their own stupid fault. And there is a whole other level of hell when the life circumstances that crush you are because of your own stupidity. Folks, I want you to think as you watch these real people leave everything they've ever known for something they've never seen, I want you to think about the trail of tears. I want you to think about the flood of refugees out of the South Sudan, the Nazi Nazi death marches of 1944-45. If you're in there with me, I want you to think about District 12. This was the enactment of the covenant curse. It took Israel about 500 years to get there. It took Yahweh a little bit longer to pull the trigger. This trail of tears, this hungry, humiliating, harrowing march is a group of people that think it's all over. If there was ever a people whose lives were captive to the iron bars of despair, this was them. And when they looked at their current situation, stripped of their homes, relationships, careers, and tried to imagine a pathway into the future, nothing. When they tried to stir up the agency to motivate themselves toward something, anything, numb, numb. And no one had to tell them again that this whole situation 
was their own stupid fault. It's into this reality that the prophet speaks. You got the backdrop? Hear the word of the Lord. But now, but now, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, and your designer, O Israel, don't be afraid because I've redeemed you. I've called you by my name and you are mine. I don't know about you, but if I was in exile of Judah at this point in time, I would not be expecting the author of the Mosaic Covenant to be announcing that one over there, that mess of a human being in the corner, that one's mine. I created her. I designed her. When you cross through the waters, I will cross with you. Hmm. I think that's the Exodus story. I think we've been here before. And the rivers, I'm not going to let them overwhelm you. And when you go into the midst of the fire, I'm not going to let it burn you. I won't let that flame kindle upon you. Why? Because I am. I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your deliverer. You are precious in my eyes. You are honored and I love you. Is he talking to me? And here it is. Don't be afraid. Why? Because I'm with you right here, right now in the bowels of this mess you've made. And from the east, I'm going to bring your children. I want you to remember that you're listening to a voice that's speaking to refugees right now. What happens to a refugee family? Think about those trains to Auschwitz. Think about the Uyghur people in China. Think about what's happening on our own southern border. From the east, I'm going to bring your children back. And from the west, I'll gather your scattered ones. I'll say to the north, release them. And to the south, let them go. Bring out my sons from the far reaches and my daughters from the edges of the earth. Each one who's called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I fashioned, even whom I have made. This is what the Lord says to you. You mess of a people. I am your redeemer. I am Yahweh, your holy one, the creator of Israel, your king. And I am the one who makes a way through the sea and a path through the mighty waters. I know how to do this. Now, these are powerful words. But at this point, you should be asking me, um, so, Sandy, this is all quite lovely, but how in the world could these very real people who've just signed the papers for chapter 11. How can these very real people who have just watched their spouse pack her bags and drive her children, your children, away? How could these people, who have been prisoners and refugees for 70 years, who have learned to wear the name tag, exile, outsider, failure, Adulterer, addict, loser. Ever find the courage to step onto that highway and believe for a better future? How could they find, in Snyder's words, the agency to reach for something else? But here it is. Look at verse 18. Do not remember the former things of the past. Don't consider them. We're done with that. See, I'm about to do something new. New, now it springs up. Can you see it? I am going to make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. 
Quoting from Isaiah 40, verses three through five, I will make a highway in the wilderness. I will level mountains to make it possible for you to move forward. I'm gonna raise up valleys. In other words, I am going to throw open the gates of Babylon in order to bring my people home. And the gates of hell will not stand against me. Yahweh is declaring that he has already imagined the pathway forward. He has already created the highway needed. Yahweh is not waiting on his people to scrap up enough energy and enough agency to make this happen. Rather than the creator of the cosmos, the one who hurled the stars into place, the very one against whom Israel has sinned, he has created hope where no hope could be found. Take that, Professor Snyder. (laughs) He has reached out to the individual who's in that place where personal influence has lost all relevance. Those extremely traumatic situations of which people are aware that what is so deeply desired is out of my reach. I don't have the talent. I don't have the resources. I got nothing to get me there. And so the God of Israel who, by the way, is your God as well, he makes a way. Now, I can assure you that these refugees, yeah, who've been living in the ghettos of Babylon for 70 years, they're scared. They are scared to leave what they know, Babylonia, to go and reach for something they've never even seen. That would be Jerusalem. I can guarantee you that they are intimidated by the journey because it's long and it's hard and it's dangerous. Yeah, they were more than a little tempted to despair that their past would forever define their futures. I'm going to say that again. There is someone in this room that needs to hear it. They are more than a little convinced that their past will forever define their future. And you know what? It might just be easier to stay right here in my misery because at least I recognize it. But here it is, in that moment of decision, based on the character of the God who called them, these folks had the courage to wrap themselves in a story that's bigger than they were. Yeah, I have already walked a people across a mighty sea. They wrapped themselves in a story that was bigger than they were, and those exiles found the agency to become who we know as the remnant and usher in the age of the Christ. I deserve at least one amen. Thank you. All right. How? Well, here's where President Snow comes back in. Snow was right. Their hope was stronger than their fear. And that is what they needed. So what do we have here? Moving toward conclusions. According to the hermeneutics gurus, and I am one of those, we have in this story of Israel a paradigm. That's the whole point. A paradigm offered to teach us how the people of God who had gotten themselves into a very bad place, got out of that bad place. How a fractured rabble of refugees became a nation again. Yeah, how a broken people found the strength, the hope, and the agency to believe in a new future. This is a paradigm. And as are all things in the Bible, this paradigm is offered to us, to teach us. And what is it teaching us? That hope is stronger than fear. And that hope can be learned. How was it learned? I remember that story of the Exodus. And when we are in a place where there is simply no 
way forward, your God, my God, is actually in the habit of creating that way forward. So let me tell you one more story and I'll be through. 1957, there's this guy named Kurt P. Richter. Um, a guy I claim no relationship to, and you will know why soon. His research involved the phenomenon of sudden death in animals and man, and in an attempt to produce a scenario of sudden death, this scientist decided to drop a cohort of wild Norwegian rats into enclosed jars of water to watch how long it took them to drown. I think this is before, like, the medical ethics came in in animal testing in laboratories. Okay, to his dismay. Whereas some of his rats lasted only a few minutes, others, equally healthy, continued to swim for as long as 81 hours, leaving him with a data sample way too random to be evaluated. This guy was in trouble. So Richter decided to precondition his rats in order to stabilize his data pool. How did he do that? Well, first he had to go out and get a new cohort of rats because he had killed all the other ones, right? So he gets his new cohort of rats and he drops them into the test tubes. And every time he sees a rat that's beginning to stumble, he grabs his net and fishes out that rat and dumps him in a tray till he drives off and then he jumps him back in the tube. So what happens over the span of this interesting uh, experience is that all of his rats moved into the 60-plus-hour category of being able to swim in a test tube. Think of that the next time you're dealing with a rat problem in a sewer system. Okay, thereby stabilizing his data pool and making Carl P. Richter a very happy man. As he could now move forward with his research on sudden death in animals and man. Okay, he came up with absolutely nothing in his intended category. Um, but what he did discover, because sometimes science uh, yields some unexpected results, is he discovered that hope can be learned. And that is exactly what happened to the rats. The fact that some unknown force had rescued them from their plight over and over and over again when their strength was failing taught them to believe that the next time they found themselves stranded in a test tube full of water, more than likely someone was once again going to scoop them out and rescue them. Therefore, keep on swimming. Tragically, for those rats, luckily I'm not terribly attached to rats, but tragically all the same, the person who was educating them and what hope is and how hope works could not have given a rat's behind regarding their well-being. He had no intention of actually caring for them or, or, or forging their future. And so that unknown force cared nothing for their lives or their pain. Paul teaches us differently. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. And this hope can't disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Ah, the mystery of the gospel. So in our case, unlike Kirk. P. Richter, God has no intention of watching you go down. 
So on this Sunday morning, just as we're turning that page into 2023, just as that wonderful moment at 12.01 on January 1st, 2023, when you said, this is going to be a great year, has faded under the cargo of 2022. And you are finding yourself still stuck in a relationship that you can't seem to fix. A professional trajectory that no matter how much you invest, simply won't traject. Or maybe juggling way too many balls than you can handle and pretty convinced that one's going to hit the floor and it's all going to blow up in your face. Bills that can't be paid. A spouse who's tired of waiting. An institution that doesn't see you. Maybe an addiction that you still haven't even named to yourself, let alone your soulmates. In that awkward liminal space between where I am right now and where I know I can be all woefully compounded by the detailed inventory of all of the inadequacies and limitations of your life, I want you to hear the words of Yahweh, your creator this morning. I have called you by my name. And you, you're mine. I want you to hear the words that God spoke to me more than once when I came to the end of my rope stretched beyond my capacity in way over my head, deadlines looming, slander swirling, bureaucrats crushing, dealing with a denomination or a guild or an institution that couldn't see me. God knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly how much is on your plate right now, and he knows exactly how many limitations you have. You know why? He designed those limitations. And he has absolutely no intention of letting all those things on your plate pull you down. Our God is not standing beside that test tube with a clipboard going, check, that one went down. He knows all about the bills. He knows all about what's due, done next week. He knows about the private meeting with your doctor last week. He knows about the argument that you had with your spouse that you hope the neighbors didn't hear. He knows it all. All of the crises of our private world. And he knows, he knows where you need to get to get where you're going. So here's the biggest surprise. Our God is not standing by waiting to check off that box. When you finally give up and go down. No, your God (laughs) is standing on the road to your future. And he's reaching out his hand and he's saying this, get up one more time, dust yourself off. I know how to do this. I know the way forward. Come on, let's do this thing. Let's do this thing. Thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast. To find out more about Trinity, visit us online at www.trinityreston.org.